Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Why don't you read along with me? We're going to go down through verse 15. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's, full of wonder. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if it is by our own power or piety that we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you put to death the author of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. I know Chelsea just prayed, but just give me 10 seconds. Jesus, help. Every day, help. Help us to listen to your word. Help me in this very moment, Lord to preach your word, to, to ignore all distractions, to ignore every rabbit trail, every opinion, every preference, every idea, or every unhelpful thought. Lord, I pray for just a stillness of mind. I pray that the hearts of your people would right now at this very moment be opened and that you would communicate to them through your written word what it is that you would have them hear. We love you, Jesus. We trust you, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we're going to get into this text, I, I'd like to begin with, with a question and, and, a, and a thought. Uh, and my question is, can you guys think of anything that you have once upon a time lost? Even if it was just very temporarily, there's something that you once had that you even took for granted. In fact, preferably something that you've had that you've taken for granted. Maybe your health, maybe your relationship. Um, I know that 2020... 2021 took away a lot of things that people had once taken for granted. Um, just being able to gather together as a church, being able to go to a restaurant, being able to just go outside with some sense of normalcy uh, was for a time taken away from us. And, and think of something that, that, you have, that you have lost and then gotten back. And it re try to think and remember if, if you recall at all that whenever you got back whatever it was that you had lost, if, you, if it wasn't sweeter for having been lost for some time, if, if your appreciation of that thing was, 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 was more because you had lost it. Uh, one example in my life, I don't mean to put anybody off or, or, or disturb anybody, but I've, <laughs> I, I, got a, I got really sick. I'm not going to name the country because like, it's not about the country, but I got really sick uh, overseas in a country that did not have uh, toilet paper or hot, <laughs> or hot water, and it was, it was awful. It was awful. I was in bed for nine days um, with a stomach bug, and when I got back to the United States, I'll tell you what, I have never once since then flushed my toilet and not been radically thankful, and it was because there was a time in my life, short as it was, that I couldn't just do that. Um, and so we're very privileged in this country to have that readily available to us. What's something that you have lost that whenever you got it back, it was all the sweeter for having been missing for a time being? Because what Peter is going to do tonight is he's going to take away something from the people that he's preaching to. This sermon that we're going to consider tonight is actually a very hard sermon. It's a blistering sermon. Uh, it's a sermon that today would be considered very unpolitically correct. Peter names names, he points his finger, he does not, he doesn't stutter. He says the hard truth the exact way that it is. But I also want us to notice that as he does so, he's never mean, he's never vindictive, he's never cruel, he never has a holier-than-thou attitude about himself or towards them, but he says the very hard truth. And it's very important because the good news of the gospel is only good news, and it's only unbelievably good news because the bad news of our condition as natural human beings is really, really bad and really dark and really evil. And Peter confronts this head on with boldness and with clarity. And so while he is preaching the sermon, the thought that I want us to remember is that as we traverse through these few verses, it's, it's going to be hard. There's hard things that are said here, but they're said in love. 
And they're said with the intention of leading people to a repentance that they need and a forgiveness that they need and is readily available to them. So even though tonight is, is gonna have a very big portion of, of hard stuff, because Peter is saying hard stuff, and as a pastor, I have to say what's in the Bible, what God the Spirit wrote here. But I want us to remember every step of the way that when we get to verses 14 and 15, the good news of the gospel shines forth. And that's what Peter is leading these people to. He's not being mean or, or condemning for no good reason. He's getting people to look honestly and with clarity at where they're really at. What he takes away from these people, what they lose is their self-confidence. What they lose is their hubris. What they lose is any sense of safety or security that they might have had them in themselves or in their religion. It's the same thing that Peter did in his first apostolic sermon. He, he smashed their expectations, he crushed their self-confidence, and then he pointed them right to Jesus. And he said, if you have, if he said, this is what you have done. This is just the reality of the situation. And the people's response was, what must we do? And Peter said, I'm glad you asked. There is hope. There is joy. There is forgiveness. There is peace available. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ and no other name. And so we're going to consider that same basic idea tonight, but from a, a bit of a different vantage point. We're, we're, we're moving in on the, uh, on the coattails of a great miracle that took place. If you were here last week, and very few people were, it was January 1st, everybody was partying, I don't blame them. But what we looked at is the, the, is the, the work that Jesus Christ began to do and teach, which is how the letter of Acts starts. Peter and John continue that work not only in the proclamation of the gospel, but also in the miraculous powers that Jesus himself also displayed. And the point of the miraculous powers, what we considered last week, is that they can be used to confirm the legitimate moving of God in the world. Jesus, in many different places, said, look at the works that I do. They testify to who I am. But scripture is also equally warning and saying, just because somebody can do something miraculous, test the spirits. Is the name of Jesus Christ being lifted up? And I've, I've said that several times over the last several weeks, and we really hit it hard last week. And what I wanna add to that tonight is, is in, in the world of the miraculous, I, I kinda sort of tongue in cheek have made jokes about me trying to be a cessationist. That is someone who believes that the miracles have completely stopped. Uh, and I, I can't, I actually, that's not, I don't find that biblically. Um, I have, but I myself have never seen a miracle. I have never spoken in tongues. And so while I have no experience with it, I do believe that it's in the realm of biblical possibility, but when it happens, what is the result? Is the name of Jesus lifted up and is repentance anywhere in the mix? Because that is the biblical goal, the, 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 the purpose of the miracles is to bring people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and such a knowledge of Jesus Christ that they repent of their sins and they put their faith in him as Lord and as Savior. Consider this verse from Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, excuse me, Matthew writes, then he began to denounce the cities, this is Jesus, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus said, woe to you Chorazin and woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will, be more bearable, bear, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. The point of Jesus' miracles are to elevate him in such a specific way that we, can't, we don't look at Jesus as the demons do. The demons and the devil look at Jesus and they have an intellectual assent. They have knowledge. They know who he is. And when you're reading through the Gospels, early on in Jesus' ministry, the devils are the only ones who know who Jesus is. They identify him correctly and they actually, in some instances, Ask, ask, ask him for mercy. It's a terrifying reality because then we're, we're confronted with the question, well, what's the difference between my belief in Jesus and the devil's belief in Jesus? And the difference is to believe into, into Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel is to embrace it. The devil does not embrace Jesus. The devil does not love Jesus. He does not worship Jesus. He wants no intimacy 
with Jesus. To believe in Jesus and to repent is to turn away from self, to turn away from your own purposes, and to pursue after, to go after the one who is life itself, which is the reality we're gonna consider here in a few verses. So this miracle has taken place, and Peter uses it as an opportunity. This miracle that we considered last week, Peter uses it as an opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ and to repentance. And praise God that repentance and forgiveness is available because those are things that we absolutely need. And in Jesus Christ, they they are available to us. So the text goes on, while he was clinging, this is the man who was healed, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's and they were full of wonder. Remember that that miracles are called three different things in scripture, miracles, signs, and wonders. And the wonder is is what what they do to people. The miraculous, the supernatural causes people to wonder. And then Peter takes this wonder, he takes this amazement, he takes this shock, and he uses the sign of that miracle to signify Jesus Christ. He uses the miracle to point to Jesus Christ. This is what the miracles are for. Verse 12, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us as if it is by our own power or piety that we have made this man walk? Notice this. So here's the beginning of what we see Peter doing. He's going to confront these people. He's going to rebuke these people. He's going to tell them of their sin, but listen to how he refers to them. He doesn't say, you dogs. He doesn't say, you worms. He doesn't say, you repugnant, nasty sinners. He says, men of Israel, which is another way of saying brothers, which is actually the exact word that he uses in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but we'll get to that text next week. But Peter is being respectful. He's being polite. This is not a shame on you, I'm better. Shame on you, I'm more disciplined, or I'm more deserving, or I am in a different class of citizenship than you are. Men of Israel, men of Israel also means sons of promise from the line of Abraham. You're, you're in the line of genealogy. You're an Israelite. You are, you are my brothers. You're the men of Israel. But then he says, well, why do you marvel? And what he's saying is, is this is where the mild rebuke begins. Why why do you marvel? He's saying, this is what we've been telling you. This, Jesus has this power. It's not, it's not us. Remember all the miracles that Jesus did? He was attested by miracles. You saw his miracles. Thousands of people around Jerusalem and around the Sea of Galilee and around, and, and around the area of Samaria pursued after Jesus, followed him great distances, because they saw the signs and the wonders that he can do. It says that many times in the Gospels. Men of Israel, do not marvel at this. Why do you gaze at us? It's not us. The work that Jesus began to do, the things that Jesus began to teach, Peter and John are continuing that. So don't marvel at Peter. It's not his power. Don't marvel at John. It's not his piety. It is the work of Jesus sovereignly through these men. Peter goes on to say, the God of Abraham... And of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Peter uses the designation, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, and he does that on purpose because he's connecting the history of Israel to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is the God that they worshiped. This is straight out of Exodus chapter three. And he says, this God, your God, the God that you worship, the God that you claim to believe in, the God that you claim to pursue and to honor and to learn about through your study of Torah, this very God glorified Jesus. This Jesus that you knew, this Jesus that you killed, your God actually was glorifying him. It's connecting Jesus to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he's connecting Israel's history to the God of Abraham and God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, which means that he's connecting them to Jesus himself. But notice he says, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob glorified his servant, Jesus. I wonder if at that moment something didn't click. Notice that Peter doesn't say, the prophet Jesus, or his son Jesus. He says his servant Jesus. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 says this. He was despised and he was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for you and for your, our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And this whole list of things, this whole describing of this suffering begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. The Messiah was going to come and was going to suffer and was going to die. And Peter identifies Jesus Christ as this servant who suffered. And I wonder if it finally clicked. Because in the mind of the Jewish person of that day, Messiah could not die. That's not how you win wars. That's not how you overthrow the Roman oppressors of that time. You can't have a Messiah who's going to come and be meek and mild. You can't have a Messiah who's going to come and be killed. That doesn't make any sense. And I wonder if in that moment, when he said that, there was something that finally clicked. That this promise of Messiah, oh, is actually going to be one who's going to be pierced. One who's going to be struck. One who's going to be crushed. One who's by his wounds, we are going to be healed. Jesus was God's servant. He served all through his life. He served all the way to the point of death. Je Jesus himself said many different places, but here's just a couple verses. In Matthew 20, 28, he said, I came not to be served, but to, ser but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says in the Gospel of John, I only do the things that the Father has taught me. He only did and he only said the things that his Father told him to do. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. He came as a servant. He came intentionally. He came as a volunteer, knowing what was going to happen. He glorified his servant, Jesus. I just thought this was sort of cool. This was just sort of fun. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord, the Lord is salvation. And throughout, the, throughout the, the, the New Testament, Jesus is called all sorts of things. He's called so many different things. I just wrote a list of a few. He's called the Alpha and Omega, the bread of life, the light of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called a man of sorrows. He's called shepherd. He himself refers to himself as the son of man and the way, the truth, and the life. But the name Jesus is the name that's attributed to him the most, his earthly name. It's given to him He's identified, he's called Jesus over 800 times in the New Testament. This servant, Jesus, was glorified. But you delivered and, you, but this is whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. The denial of the, of the Jewish people, the denial of, of, of what, what John calls his people, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Their denial was so strong, they didn't just sit around and pontificate about it. You know, they didn't just sit around at the pub drinking scotch, talking about like, oh, we got to get that insurrectionist Jesus one day. Yeah, I don't like him either. He's kind of a jerk. They actually did something about it. And they did something about it that was so, was so strong and so tenacious that they went up against Pilate, the Roman governor. It's really an incredible thought if you consider the weight of that. Pilate was the Roman governor. He was the guy in charge of, of, of the people that were, that were lording it over the Jews. They were a vassal state. The Romans were in power, sort of just letting the Jews get away with doing whatever they wanted to do culturally. But in a moment's notice, the Romans would lay down the strong arm of the law, and these Jewish leaders went up against the leader and said, we want Jesus dead. But Pilate had decided that Jesus was innocent, had decided to release him. And when you consider all four gospels, there's six different instances where Pilate says, this man is innocent, or I find no guilt in him, or he just flat out tries to release Jesus from custody. And the blood 
lust of these people pushed back on Pilate, a man who could have just ordered their execution and said, no, we want this man dead. They went so far as to cry out for his blood. Let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children, which means let his blood, let the, let the blood guilt of this death be on us for generations to come. Pilate, kill this guy. I don't find any, I don't find any guilt in him, which is astonishing. The, Pilate looked into the eyes of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a Roman governor. To kill somebody back then is nothing to these people. It's nothing. They, they utilized crucifixion, for goodness sakes. I mean, it wasn't anything for Jesus to die. What kind of burden is that to Pilate? It would have been much more easy going on Pilate for him to just say, okay, I condemn him to death. But he refused. He couldn't bring himself to do it. And he finally just conceded and said, you guys do with him what you want. And remember, he, it, it says that he washed his hands of the situation. And they cried out for his blood. Even Pilate's wife, Matthew 27, 19, she said to Pilate, don't have anything to do with this guy. Don't hurt him. I have suffered greatly because of him in a dream tonight. But they cried out for Jesus' blood. They delivered him over to Pilate. They denied him. And then Peter buries the knife all the way to the hilt. Pilate decided to release him, but verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's emphasizing the guilt. He's emphasizing the problem. And this is, this, this pattern of preaching, this model is biblical. It's right here, but it's one that the church is really scared to do. And I blame pastors and preachers. I blame people like me. People like me are the first, are the people on the front lines who are responsible for not leading by example when it comes to trying to when it comes to, to pleading with the world that there is such a thing as sin and death and decay and hell, it's true. We're evil. We need a savior. We are guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and, and the, the payment of that sin, Romans 6.23, is death. That's what the Bible says. We have violated God's righteousness. We have violated his holiness. We have rejected him. We've committed mutiny against him. And in his just perfection, in his righteous goodness, he has to cut us off. And that's essentially what death is. It's being cut off relationally from the one who created us, from the one who gave us life. Relationally, relationally severed from that relationship. And to try to get around that and, and ignore it and dilute it is to dilute the gospel. You start diluting sin, you start diluting the reality of death and hell and God's wrath, then all of a sudden Jesus isn't really all that important. We don't need him. Jesus becomes more something like good advice instead of good news. He becomes extra. He becomes superfluous. He becomes a supplement rather than our savior. And this is scary, but it's the first place where Peter goes. He does it in chapter two. He does it here in chapter three. He brings these people face to face with the fact that our hearts are dark and twisted and it's scary it's a scary thing to hear and this is why pastors don't preach it pastors a lot of them pastors quote unquote pastors they want full they want the pews to be full they want their own parking spot they want the tax write-off they want a full house they want over a thousand Instagram followers they want to be liked they want to be popular Jesus Christ himself said in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, everyone will hate you on my account. You ever think about that? Why? I mean, the same Jesus who says, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who speak against you. Someone forces you to go one mile with them, take the hit, offer to go two miles. Don't, don't, don't seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Seek compassion. Seek forgiveness. Go out of your way to be benevolent. Go out of your way to establish as much human flourishing as is possible, even for your outspoken enemies. While he was being nailed to the cross, Jesus said, forgive them, they know not what they do. So why on earth would the world hate us? If we even do that remotely close to something kind of resembling a good job of doing that, why would the world hate us? Well, the world would hate us because we just preach that Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, the life. That'll get you axed. 
telling the world that they're sinners and that they need a savior, that will get you axed. Never mind the fact that there is a savior. Never mind the fact that he came at great cost to himself. Don't insult me by telling me that I need forgiving. That's, a, that's an offensive thing. You need forgiveness. And in our culture of idolatry and self being elevated to the place of deity and our own relative truth being unquestionable, the fact that God is right, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life is absolutely an affront to our autonomy and is absolutely offensive and the world wants to extinguish it. But we cannot back down. Jesus didn't. Nor did his apostles. And every one of them died horrific deaths. Do we follow Jesus? Do we love him? Do we have any real understanding of this? Or do we just sort of like flutter by it and say, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus is nice and he's cool and, you know, as long as he doesn't get too much into my business, as long as he doesn't get into my sexuality, as long as he doesn't get into my drug use, or as long as he doesn't get into the fact that I'm cutting corners on my taxes because, hey, I need the money anyways, as long as he doesn't get into my stuff, Jesus is fine. Friends, we have to confront sin for what it really is. Jesus died for it. And so Peter begins this sermon by confronting the sin. Like a good preacher, like a good pastor, he highlights just how dark and evil and selfish and twisted our hearts are. We don't need some new wisdom. We don't need philosophy or some new practice or some new prohibition. We need a whole new heart. And God offers it to us by grace, through faith, for free. Our hearts are wicked. It's not the Biden administration. It wasn't the Trump administration. It's not socialism. It's not capitalism. It's not any system. It's the human heart. And there might be some political element that can sort of make things a little bit better for a time, but humans will screw it up eventually. We will mess up everything because our hearts are inherently wrong. And Jesus offers us a brand new heart, a brand new rebirth that comes with repentance and with forgiveness, and that is available to us. So he points out their hearts. He points out the evil. He points out the twisting. He points out the dark. You denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, verse 14. They denied the holy and righteous one. The the word holy is the opposite of us. Jesus was holy. In, in, in part, he was holy completely by his nature. He was God in the flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's mysterious and it's beautiful and it's very specific. He was truly God and he was truly man simultaneously. The math doesn't add up for us, but he was completely holy. He was completely set apart. He was completely different by his nature alone, and he was also completely set apart and holy because of his purpose. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came for the joy set before him, which is you. We're sinners. We're twisted. We're dark. We're evil. Our hearts are all messed up. We're cynical and malevolent and evil. We commit all sorts of horrendous crimes all the time, and yet God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I'm not even to that point in the sermon yet, but I just can't even contain it. Like, he loves us still. He loves us still. He came with a purpose. He's set apart for a purpose to seek and to save that which is lost, and what good are we doing if we're not trying to tell people, friend, in love, you're lost. But the good news is there's a savior. Are you sick? Yes. Well, good news is that Jesus said it's the sick that he came for. It's not the well that need a physician. It's the ill. It's the sick. And he is the great physician. You denied the holy and righteous ones. Even the demons refer to Jesus as the holy one. Luke chapter 4, the, and Luke, Luke 4 and Luke 8, two interactions with demons that Jesus had. And bo- in both occasions, the demon looks at Jesus, sees him, and says, what would you have to do with us, holy one of God. Even the demons believe and they shudder. He is holy and he is righteous. And righteous means that he is perfectly innocent of any violation of God's law. In word, in thought, in deed, he is absolutely flawless. When you read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus commands, don't even have, don't even have anger in your heart. Don't have lust in your heart. Don't, don't have to make an oath. Be, such a, be a person of such transparent honesty that you don't even have to swear by heaven or hell. If you say yes or no, people know that you mean what you say. Jesus 
in that moment is describing himself. Never has lust in his heart, never has murder, never a grudge, never an inkling of disdain where he's gonna like, hold a grudge against you, he's gonna seek you out, he's gonna hurt you, he's not gonna get revenge on you. That's not how his righteousness works. He will punish sin, but that's not vindictive, that's not vengeful, that's very different. He's describing himself, he is righteous, he is perfect. He is perfect in everything that he said. He's perfect in everything that he did. He's perfect in everything that he ever even thought. And we asked for a murderer. You denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. The great irony here is that one of the false accusations that was brought against Jesus in the gospel accounts was basically that he was an insurrectionist, that he was trying to raise up this group of hadtag, this, this, this ragtag motley crew of ragamuffins and throw Caesar out of his place. And so they said, hey, this guy, Pilate, this guy, this guy is trying to, he's trying to get into your business, he's trying to usurp authority, and so I think that we should have him killed. But then they asked for Barabbas, who was actually an insurrectionist, a murderer, someone who had actually taken life in an attempt to to conduct an insurrection, and the irony there is just ridiculous. He's an insurrectionist, we want him dead, but give us an insurrectionist in return. Just doesn't make any sense. It's just proof that God had ordained from before time that this was going to take place. They asked for a murderer. This is, <laughs> this is how, I mean, it's so silly, and it's so sad. This is how twisted our heart is. We want a murderer, we love the darkness. We don't want our sin to be exposed. In our nature, in ourselves, in our own fallen depravity, Ephesians 2 says that by nature we're children of wrath, which means that by nature we're born into a completely different dominion than what Jesus is. We're born in the dominion of evil. Colossians chapter one calls it the dominion of darkness. We're transferred from the dominion of darkness and we're brought into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But in our natural state, we look at Jesus Christ and we say, to hell with him, give us the rapist, give us the murderer, give us the insurrectionist, let him run around in our streets. There's something wrong with us. They asked for Barabbas to be released so that Jesus would be carted off to his death. John chapter three, the words of Jesus this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It just drives home again and again and again. Why did the world hate Jesus? Why will the world hate us? Well, Jesus makes this very clear in John chapter seven. He says it in many places, but here's one example. John chapter seven, Jesus says this, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You cannot read the Bible and come to the conclusion that we are okay. You cannot look at world history, I would argue, and say we're doing good. You can't look at the last few decades and say we're doing okay. You can't look at 2020 and say we've got this handled. We can deal with the complexities of different people and different beliefs and different convictions and different preferences. And different. We want to cancel people. We want to, we want to exile people. We want to get rid of people. There's something wrong with us. We need Jesus. And in his love and in his grace, he has made himself available to us because despite our own brokenness and twisted up hearts and evil, because he is love, friends, hear what I'm saying. He loves you. Just pause on that. God loves you. And some of you might be here in this room tonight and everything that I just said for the last half an hour, you're like, God, Ian, shut up. I don't even, I don't need, like, I just really don't think that that's true. I don't think humans are really all that bad. I think that you're being overdramatic. I think that the Bible's being overdramatic. Listen to what the Bible says and then hear the words, he loves you. If you're here tonight and you've hit, listened to what I've said for the last half an hour and you're like, that's not even breaking the tip of the iceberg, dog. I'm, I'm way, you're, you're sugarcoating it a little bit. I'm way worse than that. I'm actually not even convinced that I'm in the realm of Jesus' grace because I'm so bad. Here's these words. He loves you. He loves you. Prove it, pastor. Okay. He died for your sins. He died for you. Well, he didn't die for me. He said, come to me, all 
who are weary and heavy laden. Are you willing to admit that you're weary and heavy laden? He said in John 7, come to me all who are thirsty. Are you thirsty? Is this life sucking it out of you? Are you tired? Are you beat up? Are you depressed? Are you done? Political powers are not going to fix this. Socialism is not going to fix this. Some other system is not going to fix this. Jesus Christ changed hearts. People who are born again by the power of God through the indwelling of God the Spirit, that is what's going to change things. That's what's going to change lives. That's what's going to change communities. But unfortunately, on this side of heaven, it's always going to be a battle. It's always going to be a fight. But we have the kingdom to look forward to, and that's where we're going now. Verse 15. So you ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you put to death the author of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. One of the most paradoxical statements in all of Scripture, you put to death the author of life. Jesus is the source of all life, the entire cosmos. I just showed a picture a few weeks back from the James Webb Telescope of a photo taken, a picture of, of, of galaxies that are point six billion light years away, things that no human being has ever laid eyes on before, and God made it just because he likes it. He likes creation. And Jesus is holding that up. He's sustaining the universe. He's sustaining every breath that is ever taken by any human being ever born on God's green earth. Jesus is sustaining that. He's the source of it. And his life is not only pragmatic, it's not only efficacious, not only does it produce things, but his life is also tremendously benevolent, thank God, because we need some benevolence. His life is incredibly, unimaginably gracious, and thank God, because we need grace. His life is unimaginably forgiving, and thank God, because we need forgiveness. He is the author of life. Colossians 1, all things are made through him and by him and for him. He, is in, he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. Go home and Google pictures from the James Webb telescope and then read Hebrews 1.3 and go, Jesus upholds this by his word. What could a God like that do to you and to me if he wanted to? It's scary to think about for too long. But he's gracious, he is kind, he is a God of love. One of the things that really tripped me out, I, when my wife and I first met, she wasn't a believer. And uh, I was really just starting to get serious about my faith. And so I had these long conversations with her about, about my faith and about uh, my, not only my faith in Jesus Christ, but my faith in Jesus Christ against all the other things that were vying for my faith. Things like science, reason, logic, philosophy, whatever else. Uh, and things like just straight out anarchy, self-praise, uh, hedonism. There's all sorts of things vying for our attention. And I started studying the sciences. I started studying the world and quantum physics and, and, and outer space and subatomic particles and all this stuff. Just like, this is what God made. How did he make it? How does it work? And what are the theories that other people posit to explain how all this works? And I want to share some of these with you because it's wild. Jesus is the author of life. We're going to get to the part where they kill him, but Jesus is the author of life. All things are made through him and by him and for him. Science tells us a lot about where we live. And I want to talk about this thing called the science of fine-tuning. It's how, how does, what are the tiny little infinitesimal particles and pieces that work in complete harmony with one another to make the sun burn, to make the earth spin, to make gravity all work? So scientists believe that there are an estimated hundred, that in our universe, this is just in our universe alone, that there's a hundred billion galaxies. <laughs> Who counted that? Like who's gonna, I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but these are the numbers that they publish. In our, in our universe alone, 100 billion, billion galaxies, each of those galaxies has 100 billion suns, and each one of those suns has 100 billion stars. So where did that come from? Who sustains that? How did that come to be? What is it made of? How does it work? Jesus is holding it all together. And it's weird, man. The science of fine-tuning is weird, and the science of the galaxy, the facts of the galaxy, it's weird. There's these things that we've observed in space that are called neutron stars. 
And neutron stars are stars that have, they're called that because they have such a strong gravitational pull that they just, they pretty much just suck in on themselves. They pull themselves in on themselves because the gravitational force is so strong. And because that's happening, their density, their weight, their mass, their volume is really weird. It's really strange. And scientists have, have got within a pretty close, pretty close approximation that a teaspoon of a neutron star weighs several hundred million tons in, in, that, much of a, in that much of a piece of mass. Because there's something about the gravitational pull, it's sucking in on itself, that a teaspoon weighs 700 million tons. Does not make sense. It does not compute. But our gravitational pull seems to be working out quite nicely to our advantage. The gravitational pull between our sun, between our moon, between our stars, between our planets, everything is lined up perfectly, everything is synchronized, everything is exactly where it's supposed to be, literally exactly where it's supposed to be. Our Earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour on its axis. Its axis is 23 and a half degrees. And while it's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour on itself, it's going at 67,000 miles an hour around the sun. And the reason why it's tilted is because it's receiving a 40% gravitational pull from the sun. It's receiving a 60% gravitational pull from the moon. And so we have a tilt. And if we didn't have a tilt, we run the risk of becoming what's called tidally locked, which means that the earth would be in a standstill. Half of it would be facing the sun all the time and we would burn to death. And the other half would be facing away from the sun all the time and we would freeze to death. Without a gravitational pull from the sun or the moon exactly the way it is, there's no life on planet earth. We are all dead. Without the 23 and a half degree tilt, we are all dead. Not to mention that we would not have the four seasons like we do. Everything is tuned perfectly. Without that tilt, without that gravitational pull, we are dead. The sun is 93 million miles away from us, pulling on us at the 40% gravitational pull. 94 million miles away or 92 million miles away, we die. The tide of the ocean and the, the tide of the, there's the tide of the ocean. There's also the salt content of the ocean, which is exactly at 3.4%. If it was at 4%, we would die. The salt content in our blood is 3.4%. If it was 4%, we would be dead. If it was 2%, we would be dead. There's hydrogen levels, carbon levels, oxygen levels. Our atmosphere is 21% oxygen. Always, it's stable, it's steady. If it moved up to 22%, we would be dead. If it went down to 19%, we would be dead. There's the density of minerals, there's the speed of light, there's evaporation, there's capillary action, there's atomic realities, protons and neutrons and quarks flying around each other. They estimate that the earth is to an orange as an orange is to an atom. If we counted, if we took the time to count all of the atoms in a single drop of water, it would take 7 billion people 20,000 years counting in one atom every second. There's so many atoms in a drop of water. And flying around those atoms are electrons that orbit the atom multiple billions of times every single second. And yet, even smaller than the atom, is subatomic particles of which scientists have counted over a hundred. What makes an atom is a quark. What makes a quark is divided, is divided, is divided. And those things are all moving together in an atom with such speed and such chaos that scientists can't predict what they're going to do. Go home and look up Bell's theorem. Atoms don't make sense. How is the world actually working? Scientists were convinced that if we got down to the thing that makes the thing that makes the thing that makes the thing, that there would be predictability, that there would be uniform harmony, and the atom is anything but. And yet, all of predictable science, Newtonian understanding of the universe, is built on an atom, and the atom is absolute chaos. What is holding it all together? May I suggest that what the Bible says, simple as it sounds, in him everything is held together, let's just say yes and amen. It doesn't make any sense. You get to the giantness of outer space, it doesn't make sense. You get to the subatomic level, it doesn't make sense. But yet all of this is tremendously, monotonously predictable. What's holding it together? Jesus. 
I wasn't, well, maybe I still will, maybe I still won't, I don't know. I wanted to talk about the human eye too because the human eye is also crazy. But one of the, this is just one, so just, here's just one. So did, did Jesus create everything? Does he hold everything together? No, that's absolute rubbish. There's no proof of that. Science would say what? Well, one of the scientific approaches is the multiverse. Have you heard of this? Basically, it's the, it's the pot, and it's just that. It is a posit. It is a suggestion. It's an idea that whatever the Big Bang Theory was, whatever created the universe, created not just one, but multiple of multiple of multiple of millions, if not billions and billions of universes, and just one happened to get it right. One happened to have all of the components that are conducive to creating and sustaining human life and all life. But the question has to be asked, if there's something out there that's just creating billions of universes, is it fine-tuned? And if it is, who fine-tuned it? There's some sort of mechanism, there's some sort of manufacturing process that produces universes, and if that is true, who fine-tuned the thing that created our fine-tuned universe? And people eventually just say, what luck? I guess we, got, I just, we just got lucky. Friends, may I suggest that the, that the real answer is that someone made this, and his name is Jesus. All things were made through him and by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'll share just one more fact because this one's really cool. If you take all of the DNA in the human body, DNA is actually a six-foot-long strand that's compressed into every single cell in your body. And if you took all those cells, if you took all that DNA and you stretched it out to its six foot length and lined them up end to end, it would be 80 billion miles of information. Your body telling your body to create more of you and not more of somebody else, it would stretch from here to the sun and back 400 times, that length of DNA. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not an accident. In him, all things hold together. He is before all things. That's the efficacious life that is in Jesus. And I'll close with this. This is the benevolence of his life. He created a whole bunch of stuff and he makes it all work. He sustains it. But also, John 1, 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The life that he has is the life that we need. That life that has the power over death, victory over death, the power to create, the power to sustain, is the life that we need, and it's the life that he has graciously invited us into. First John 5, 11, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Jesus is the essence of life, and he's offering it to you. John 11, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says to Lazarus, his sister, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the author of life, and they killed his body. But he didn't stay dead. His life is so is so life, his life is so alive that it not only is impervious to death, it conquers death. It doesn't just, it's not just more powerful than death, it actually defeats death, it kills death. His death was the death of death, ultimately, and forever. It's eternal life, it's victorious life, it's immortal life. It's efficacious. And it's the life that he offers to us. Imagine the kind of hope and the kind of blessing and the kind of glory that we have waiting for us when a God with that kind of life loves us and offers that life to us. 2 Corinthians 4. Don't look at what's happening here. Our, our bodies are falling apart. It says that our outer person is wasting away. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. Not as, that was, not as we look to the things that are seen but are unseen. What's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. And then he says this light and momentary affliction. When you consider all this, a God who's holding stars in suspension billions of light years away, this is, a, this is I mean, it's, it's heavy. I know it's heavy. But comparatively speaking, our life here is very short. And Paul calls it a light and momentary affliction. It's preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you consider a God like this, 
He created us with DNA that can stretch 80 billion miles. What does he have in store for you? What, does he, what kind of home has he made for you? Do you think about it? Do you, do, you, do you put your mind on that daily? Do you transform your mind with that thought? Do you renew your mind with that sort of reality? Do you think upon that to get you through your day? I often don't. I often don't. But this is available to us. It's in his word. It's in, our, it's in his spirit, which is alive in us. What kind of glory does he have ahead of us, for us? 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Peter says, you put to death the author of life whom God raised from the dead. A fact that we are all, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Jesus' body was killed, but he didn't stay dead because he was overqualified for death. He was overqualified for death, and his death, his resurrection life, led to his resurrection life, and that killed death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. The greatest thing that enslaves us, the fear of mortality, the fear of frailty, the fear of failure, the fear of losing loved ones, the fear of losing love, that is done away with. Because Jesus' life destroyed death. And access to it is by faith, by grace, through faith. Repent and believe the gospel. What did this miracle do in chapter three? It gave way to Peter preaching this sermon saying, you're sinners, you're twisted, you're evil, you pushed Pilate into a corner when he wanted to release Jesus, you put Jesus to death, but guess what? Today, the invitation to salvation is still yours. It's still yours. He loves you. He loves us, amen? Amen.